The near-death experience. Though we don't know how many individuals have undergone one, what we do know is that these individuals' lives are drastically different than others who've not recalled being on the other side. What some describe as heaven is home, a place that near-death experiencers long to return to, even if the near-death episode happened 80 or more years ago. PMH Atwater, an NDE herself, and internationally renowned for her research into the phenomenon, has tackled yet another critical angle by researching childhood near-death episodes that she's brilliantly documented in her latest book, The Forever Angels, Near-Death Experiences in Childhood and Their Lifelong Impact. I truly enjoyed this discussion with PMH as we took a bit of a deep dive into some of the stunning elements that make up these incredibly complex and gifted individuals, and most importantly, what we can learn about them and ourselves. You know, PMH, I can't help but recall on this 18th anniversary 18th anniversary of the fated events of 9-11. One of the most vivid and passionate stories I'd ever read about the backdrop of what actually happened to those souls who were lost during that still unbelievable event, still after 18 years. That story was told by you. This was your yeah. insight. Yeah, this was your insight into 9-11. Uh, it was unlike any I'd ever heard before. Well, and, I was there in spirit. Well, I know. But since that I was time. Just floating over the place. I know. I remember reading that story. Yeah. It was amazing. In fact, I think I'm going to post it. I think 18 years, hence, it's still sure. uh, worth reading. So I'm going to post it. But listen, since that time, I have been such a fan of your work into the paranormal, <laughs> the metaphysical, the transpersonal fields that are so synonymous with your name. But I've got to tell you, you've done it again, my friend. Once again, you have sniffed out an aspect of what we call the near-death experience or NDE. And this time you've extracted elements of this phenomenon that few, if any, have covered or uncovered, I, I should say. Your well, brand nobody, nobody did. <laughs> well, we're going to get into it. Your, your book is called <clears throat> The Forever Angels, Near-Death Experiences in Childhood and Their Lifelong Impact. And it's the culmination of a deep dive into these precious children, many now adults, their lives, and the incredible powerful dimensions that surround them due to their own NDEs. This is what we're going to be discussing today. But before we do, I know you're busting at the chops, you want to talk, please allow me to formally welcome you back to Higher Journeys. Once again, PMH, it's been too long, my friend. I'm so glad you're back. Yes, it's good to be back. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love you. And by the way, for everyone out there, we, PMH and I were just talking offline, and it is so hard to believe, speaking of 18 years since 9-11, we have known each other for nearly 20 years, maybe even a tad more. Wouldn't you yeah, say? I think a tad more. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I just love her. I, I love her to pieces. So glad to have you here. So listen, let's begin okay, at let's the go. beginning. Let's begin at the beginning of this part of the journey for you. I know that you've covered many aspects of children and their extraordinary experiences. I mean, you wrote an equally powerful uh, book several years back that I just told you I love so much, Children of the Fifth World. And I still recommend that book uh, well, that's to this evolution. day. Yeah, we're talking evolution with children. Oh, of the yes. Fifth world. And the new kids born since about, um, you know, uh, uh, 1980, 1982. Mm. So we're, we're talking about the adults now. Yeah that are here on earth they're here 
That for sure. And their special pattern. Mm-hmm. And they have a specific pattern. Unlike anyone else. Well, you get into this in in this book as well. But I want to ask you before, we're going to get into all that, but tell me, what was driving you, PMH, to want to delve into the after effects of child NDEers? Why why was this so urgent for you at this time? Well, for me, um, you know, I began my work in, um, yeah, it was in 19... See, I have to go back now. I had my near-death experiences in 1977. I began my work in 1978. So that's when I started researching near-death experiences, me, myself, and I, Mm -hmm. because I did not know anything about the International Association of Near-Death Studies or anybody else doing anything. I'd never heard of Raymond Moody. All I knew was in my third near-death experience, I was told to do this research. And it's like, you know, okay, you, 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 you salute <laughs> and you do it. And I'm, I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. So I use police investigative techniques as my protocol. And I just simply dove in. Uh, and it was um, the following year that I met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at O'Hare Airport. And um, her plane was late. So we sat down on a bench and talked like a couple of schoolgirls, <laughs> and I told her about my three near-death experiences, and she said that I was a near-death survivor. She did not use the word experiencer. She said survivor, and she told me all about the famous pattern. She never mentioned Raymond Moody. She never mentioned his book. So my entree into this world was through Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. It, was not, it was not through Raymond. I never knew that. Yeah, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Really, wow, that's a big one. I had a lot of of uh, um, uh, experiences with Elizabeth, and eventually she moved to Virginia, which is not too far from where I live, and so journeyed over to her home many times as well. So I knew Elizabeth fairly as well as anybody could know Elizabeth, mm-hmm. um, and. I I did my work. I mean, I did what I was told to do. And it wasn't until about 1981, 1982 that I discovered anybody else was doing this. Hmm. <laughs> Surprise! Because I wrote a little book called I Died Three Times in 1977. You know, very innocent title. And somehow that little bitty hand... Um, um, a put together book wound up in Hartford, Connecticut, and yeah, and Kenneth Ring happened to be in that bookstore, and he saw this little bitty book, and he said, "Wow, what a title!" So he traced me down by phone, and then um, arranged that he and a friend of his would come to visit. They stayed overnight, and we talked all night. He found out what I was doing. He was just absolutely flummoxed. He never heard of such a thing that I was doing. The next morning, he said, you're you're ahead of everybody else. You know more than anybody else. You've got to come up to Storrs, Connecticut, and you've got to double-check your work against our archives. Mm -hmm. So I did. I spent a whole week with... on Ken Ring's living room sofa bed because <laughs> hmm. he was up in stores, so yeah, you know, back and forth and back and forth. 
And that's when I discovered that there was such a thing as the near-death experience. And there was such a person as Raymond Moody. And that began my work. So, um, well, it didn't begin my work, but it began my understanding that there were a lot of other people doing this kind of research Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that there were books about it out there and there were a lot of people talking about it. So that began my work. And, And during this time, I kept running across children. Now, you know, most of most of my work was just adults. So it wasn't until, oh, I don't know, 10 years later, 15 years later or so, <clears throat> I began to, to notice that children seem to walk a different road. They seem to have a different pattern. So in the 80s, I just um, decided, hey, I'm going to investigate this. Because I, you know, my research base is now nearly 5,000 adults and children. So in the 80s, I decided, okay, I've got to look at this. So the 80s and 90s, I really took a deep dive into what was happening with children. And then at that same time, I took another deep dive into the evolution of the human species. Because I wanted to know why many of the new kids were a lot like near-death kids. It's like, what's going on here? So I, I did really both studies, not at the same time, but one you know, followed the other. So you got Children of the Fifth World that came out of the first book I wrote, which is uh, uh, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. So those two books were almost the same time. I'm getting deeper and deeper and deeper into children. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, you know, this, the findings I got were just like, wow. Yeah. It's like kids don't match adults. And the younger they are, the more they don't match. So I'm out there screaming in the public saying, look at my findings. Look at my numbers. Um you know, is there somebody as a neurologist, an MD, anybody who wants to get out there and really look at children? Well, we have a number of little books. You know, you've got Mel Morris and you've got this wonderful woman in England and Australia who did some work. But none of them went deep enough. Mm-hmm. None of them. And so, you know, I've been waiting all this time, meaning... <laughs> We're getting into the night uh, 29s, and it's like nobody else is paying any attention to me. So I decided, okay, enough of this. I want to know more. I want to know, I want to be more specific, and I want to take a really, really, really deep dive. You did. You certainly yeah. did. Talk, to, did. Listen, talk about the the uh, study, the, what this book was based on. Was it 277 individuals? I, I can't quite get the number right in total the, that you studied. The first book, which was in the 80s and 90s, that was 277. Okay. This second book is 190. So we've got testimony here and investigation here of 397 people total so this is a large study and it covers a lot of people 
um, and I, and I want to talk about the differences um, because I, I think that's going to be very help, helpful in understanding what I did. Mm-hmm. There are two types of research. There's vertical research, which is your scientific protocol, which uh, establishes your framework, the bones of what's going on. Then there's horizontal research. Mm, um, I'm a horizontal researcher. We put meat on the bones. We're the ones that are uh, out in the field investigating the families, um, observing, talking. Um, We really do the in-depth work and then verify it. So I'm a horizontal researcher. So my first book, uh, the one done in the 80s and 90s, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences, uh, I went after the young. And so my my protocol then was um, um, birth to the age of 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that many, <clears throat> in fact, hardly any teens or tweens cooperated. Uh, they didn't seem to want to do it. Um, be a part of this study why so what was the, why did know. they push back i mean they just weren't interested so most of my cases were from seven and below well that's revealing in and of itself and, i would say yeah yeah and then uh in in that number um i had a large uh clump or group that were between birth and the age of 15 months and three to five years so, so therefore, I could take that study and use it with my current study. Mm-hmm. Now, what distinguishes this first study, I was interviewing and talking to or being with kindergarten kindergartners on up to young adults. So um, they were talking about or... Um, uh, uh, revealing their thoughts, their feelings, their experiences um, going forward. So, so, so these are basically young people looking forward, even adults, young adults still looking forward. This time, and this is a culmination of a three-year study, I went after the older ones, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who could verify having had a near-death experience between birth and the age of five. Okay. This time I'm being very specific, birth and the age of five. And there's lots of reasons why I chose age age five, and it has to do with the limbic system, but I won't go into that. Uh, So so this time uh, um, we've got people looking backward. So the first study looking forward this time looking backward and what I said to these people was um, did having a near-death experience at that young of an age have it had did it have any effect on your life if it did what you know tell me about it what Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was asking for essays um, very specific ones because I wanted to know about families, siblings, school, sex, dating, sports, um, you know, going out into, you know, friends and jobs and careers, you know, alcohol, drugs, the whole thing. I wanted to know all of it. 
and no one else in history, nobody else has gone after the life lived, the full picture. So now I can compare the life lived with the young ones looking forward. So I've mm. got and backward in the same book. And that's really what makes it so dynamic. Yeah, that's savvy, the way you approach that. Yeah, yeah, that's very savvy. I was I was going to ask you about circumstances for what brought on the near death episode. But I think I want to uh, jump past that PMH because I want to get right into I mean, you, you said something very powerful. Uh, ha having spoken with these adults who could look back on their lives and look at the after effects, uh, as it relates to the, the NDE, I think is, is the, that's really where the crux yeah. of your book is. And the right. one thing Absolutely. that stood out to me is trauma. Trauma is one area of experience that cropped up quite a bit, a bit in your research, namely childhood sexual abuse. You know, I myself have found some intriguing correlations broadly between abuse and other anomalous experiences, including alien abduction experiences. There seems to be this big connection here. But in this case, we're talking about abuse as it relates to the NDE itself. Can you talk about that? Because this was a big one for well, me. Well, most near-death cases, adult or child, come from trauma. Mm -hmm. That's where they come from, people at the edge of death so or, or who have died. So most of my cases with children came from birth difficulties, um, abuse issues, um, high fever, all of this kind of thing with real trauma. So yeah, there's a lot of trauma cases in there. But you know, one of the things that really impressed me um, that, I, that I really want to state here is a, a child, certainly adults too, but mostly children, if they are threatened or if they're being beaten or they're abused or they're frightened, they will automatically uh, leave their body. Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to say that. And, and, and view down. Mm -hmm. Please know that a child who is having out-of-body experiences in those kind of cases has nothing to do with psychic ability. That's a defense mechanism. That's always a defense mechanism. Happens a lot with adults too, where if you feel threatened or if you're fearful or if you're hurting, what are you going to do? Aha! You're going to leave your body. You're going to you're going to get away from that pain or that abuse or that fear. So an out-of-body experience is a defense mechanism. It's what we use to defend ourselves. Can you relate to that as an NDE or yourself in looking back at your own? Because I know a little bit about your the, the trauma-induced NDEs that you had. If you're talking, if you're talking about me personally, mm -hmm. I am. No. Um, yes, I was raped. Yes, I got pregnant. Yes, my three uh, cases come from from um, the trauma from those uh, miscarriages. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have any correlation, at least in my mind between uh, a defense mechanism and what I went through. 
So, so for me, that's different. Uh, however, when I was a child, when I was a little kid, and would would have out of body experiences. For me, that that was that was either curiosity, or it was a defense mechanism. There's something very curious to me that I'm I'm trying to figure out how to put my finger on it, and that is these constant cross correlations between trauma, anomalous experiences, psychic experiences not necessarily juxtaposed, not right up against each other, but in a lifetime. You're saying to me that you had OBEs when you were a child, perhaps out of curiosity. I mean, we know that the OBE state is one of the most common, commonly experienced paranormal phenomena, if you want to call it that, uh, that that we know. But PMH and all the research you've done, do you, do you know what I'm saying here? There's, there's cross correlations here, intersection points between all of these things, NDEs, trauma, psychic ability, uh, all of this stuff. And I- well, please, please know when we're talking with kids, uh, the, the paranormal is normal for children. Sure. So they don't have any idea that this is special. So to them, this is automatic. This is just something you do. And you'll f- find a, a lot of cases, especially with babies, once they are a little older and they can talk about um, when they were a bit little babies, um, they will often leave their body and lo- look around the house, maybe go visit daddy, maybe go visit mommy, um, maybe investigate the street out- outside. Uh, when I was a little kid, I would, I would, I would very often um, go through the canyons and go through the deserts. Uh, out of body because it was curious you know what's going on over there and so i want to go see <laughs> so i did <clears throat> so for me that was very normal it's very normal for kids but if they're having high fever uh, abuse issues birth issues they are really almost forced out okay uh, it, it's sort of a way to protect the ego to protect the personality to protect the sp- spirit, if you will. Sure, I understand that. Yeah, they, they want to save that. But it seems as a result of that PMH, and I don't know, maybe I'm just trying to find something that's not there. But it seems that those that let's say you have uh, an event um, that's triggered by a, a trauma, and you're calling it a defense to go out of your body. But then, interestingly, curiously, there are other paranormal events that may succeed that that one event it's almost like these other experiences are magnetized to the individual because they were in the midst of an anomalous event uh you know by by default with this trauma that's what i'm saying here and it's i don't like certainly that's true but you can also find this in normal children sure of course they uh for for them it's just kind of a happy thing but when you're talking about trauma or birth difficulties or drownings or this kind of thing, high fever, um, it's almost as if like they have to. It's almost as if like they have to leave and they have to leave right away. And, and all of them, they, they have to go in mass to get away. Uh, it's, it's almost as if that's the only way that they have to really save their spirit or their ego or um, that particular personality that they're coming into the earth with, 
that's the way they save it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's talk about some of the traits of the child experiencer. I mean, these are lifelong characteristics that the, the individual has. And again, because you've interviewed, you, you were interviewing these individuals at the point of they were as adults, but reflecting upon their uh, childhood NDEs, acquiring things like psychic sensitivity, electrical light and sound sensitivity, time slips, which I found interesting. And even those who can, as you reported, literally see literally see light coming out of people as they pray. And you call these prayer beams. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These individuals, and, you know. That, that was certainly in my former talk book. About, yeah. Talk the about the prayer beams. beams. Talk about that. Um, well, I talked a lot about that at a conference in Canada years and years ago after the new children and near-death experiences came out. Uh, because there was a particular individual there from England who could take pictures with his, his um, he invented his own camera where he could uh, um, photograph this kind of anomalous um, uh, items, uh, phenomena. And um, he was taking pictures um he was taking he was taking pictures of of a church, mm-hmm. and that morning inside the church with his special camera, he was taking uh, pictures of all these people in prayer. And um, then that afternoon, actually evening, uh, the people were gone, but he was taking pictures of the church again, but this time outside the church. So, in the church in the morning, there were these prayer beams. That is to say, beams of light that that would come, excuse me, that would come from the people saying prayers. And um, they would be kind of silvery or very, very bright. And then um, uh, the tips, uh, sometimes the entire beam, but sometimes the tips would would uh, be these rainbow colors, but the rainbow colors were never horizontal. They were always vertical, which I found interesting. Mm. Um, and and then, uh, so these were coming from people saying prayers in church. Then later that afternoon, when everybody was gone, then. Um, those beams were still there. They were still, that's interesting. They were going out from the church in just, ah, I, I mean, I can't hardly describe. Um, they, they were just coming out of that. They were still going. The point is, those prayers that were said in the morning were still moving from that church all day long, as near as we can tell, but certainly in the evening, they were still going. Um, So I had a number of children who had had seen these prayer beams, but also this film. And so I asked them, you know, is that what you saw? And they said, yes, Hmm. yes, yes. And I said, well, um, you know, it, it, 
did a prayer beam ever touch you? You know, somebody praying for you, you were ill in the hospital, did a prayer beam ever touch you? And and they would giggle and say, yes. And I said, well, what's it like when a prayer beam <laughs> touches you? And they said, oh, it's warm and tickly all over. It's just warm and tickly. And these were experiencers that you were talking to, those that had had NDEs. Is that what you're saying? Uh, right. Okay. Right. So they were more and, susceptible and, and to feeling... Verified what this camera, uh, this person uh, um, was showing us uh, in this big, large auditorium in, in Canada. So I was just, wow. <laughs> that is a wow. That's definitely that, a wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, so my I gosh. Talk about the prayer beams, but little bitty kids, when they have near-death experiences, they can see those prayer beams. If someone is praying for them, or praying period and a, and one of these kids are there they can see those prayer beams so my next question the, the, my next question is in terms of think of in terms of non-locality and if there's someone that's praying for you on the other side of the world let's just take it that far were they able to see okay you got to tell whoever's trying to call you <laughs> I finally and you got one of those old-fashioned phones, it sounds like. <laughs> I love it. I don't know what to do to turn it off, because usually I turn them off upstairs. Oh, that's okay. But I think there's no good. way I can jump upstairs to turn it off. Yeah, <laughs> see if you can put the receiver in a drawer somewhere. That's what I used to do back in the good old days. Oh, oh okay, that's an idea. Yeah, muffle the, the phone. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> journeyers. <laughs> in a drawer. Just like that. There we go. Okay. There we go. I love it. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, we were talking about distance and, and does this apply to non-locality as well? In other words, if somebody is praying for you from a distance, did you run into cases where a child may have been able to receive this beam sort of coming, shooting yeah. into them? The answer to your question is yes. Okay. Okay. So, so the, the uh, the idea then is prayers are real. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can. I can it's almost to like that. an electric force or Absolutely. an electric beam. Absolutely. Uh, but they're real. They're physically real. Uh huh. I can attest to that, and and I feel that there is a science to it in terms of the electromagnetism that's that's implicit within the prayer, Absolutely. and of course, and of course, emotion. I have always felt that emotion is really the carrier wave maybe literally, of of the efficacy of a prayer. Uh, yeah. You know, the more emotion that's put into it. That's a whole other conversation, which I would love to have, because I think that's absolutely incredible. But the fact that these child experiencers were more receptive to that, to be able to see it, like people see auras, I would imagine. Yeah, is, that, uh, bet they, could, they, they could see it, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about synesthesia, something that I oh, yeah. personally love, because I am a synesthete myself. Talk about how that relates to what you found in your study. Well, when we're talking about that, we're talking about changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. Please know that um, my research base here is from birth to the age of five. A lot of my ca cases were up to the age of three. Got a lot of cases in birth and uh, babies and toddlers. Mm-hmm. So we've got a near-death experience, if you'll pardon the phrase, hitting 
and and I hope you heard that because I'm taking a fist and putting it in my palm of my hand, <laughs> hitting a child when the basic flooring of the brain and nervous system and digestive system is being laid. So it's hitting that child and flipping the normal processes around. So um, the result is the younger the child, the greater the jump in intelligence. Let me give you uh, some figures here because I think this is important. Uh, in my initial study, um, when they were old enough to take the standard IQ test, 48% of them were scoring between 150 to 160. Uh, only I, I only read across four children that had uh, genetic markers for that. The rest did not. So 48% were scoring. Uh, between 150 to 160. If they were under the age of six, then 81% were scoring between 150 to 160. If they were babies, up to the age of about 15 months, especially if they had a black light experience instead of a bright light experience. You have to talk about that, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, those children, when they were old enough to take standard IQ tests, were scoring 180 and above. Wow. Okay. So the younger the child, the greater the jump. And synesthesia is part of that. Part of that, in this, when we're talking about synesthesia, that's a condition of the limbic, limbic system in the brain. Mm -hmm. your, your, your senses, your feelings, your emotions all come from the, uh, are, are, um, you find that in the limbic system. So um, when we're talking about sensory things, we're talking about the limbic. So instead of the normal responses people have to touch, a taste, texture, all that kind of stuff, a stenesthetic will have multiple or conjoined senses. That's correct. Let me give you an example. I was born with dyslexia and stenesthesia. No, I was not a near-death kid. I was just born that way. Uh, so in the first grade, I was the only child in school who could smell color, mm -hmm. see music, and <laughs> hear numbers. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was um, labeled a liar. The principal tried twice to get me kicked out of school. I spent most of the first grade on a tall stool in front of the class wearing a tall conical hat oh, that no. said dents on it as, oh, no. as an example of a bad child who oh, told me. Talk about misunderstanding. So, wow. That's... I mean, I knew I was telling the truth. Everybody else said I was lying. So at the end of the first grade, I became... Well, I decided never to trust an adult again. Adults don't know what they're talking about. And I became exceedingly independent. And I've been independent ever since. But that's where it all started, the first grade. So we're talking about synesthesia. Most of the children come back displaying 
some degree of synesthesia. So we've got a lot of sensory, nervous, brain, consciousness changing in these children. And I'm the one in the background that's screaming my head off and saying, we, we've got to have neurologists in here. We've got to have MDs in here. We've got to have scientists in here. For the first time, we have solid numbers that, that show that significant changes are happening in the child's brain when they're having a near-death experience at very tiny, young mm-hmm. ages. Mm-hmm. And so, so so, where's the resistance? My, my surmise by the tone of your voice, PMH, is that when you're saying bring in the neurologist, bring in this medical oh, field to take a look. We, we've got to have them. And so what has been the response, if, if there's been any outreach on well, your part? you know, the book's only been out a, a week. <laughs> Well, I mean, but this isn't the first thing you've talked about this. I know you've been on your bandwagon for quite some time. I've talked about it for a long time, dear. Yeah. Where I'm I'm going with this is, has there been resistance? Has there been better numbers? I'm sorry. I have the kind of numbers nobody can argue with. Right, right. Sorry to talk over you, by the way. Um, So I'm assuming there's been some resistance on the part of the... uh, There was. Okay. I'm hoping there will no longer be we'll see okay well you've got even though yours is horizontal research as opposed to vertical and i'm sure that there's some you know those are two very distinct and often at odds camps but i think they're both they're both needed so uh well look um here we have 397 people who when they were very young were drawn, um, were highly proficient in math, science, and history. 93%! Mm, 93% of 397 people were proficient in math, science, and history. Let me give you an example. Um... Uh, we uh, we also have to talk in here about abstracting. Mm-hmm. What you do talk about? Could abstract by the first grade. Abstract uh, means um, uh, the, the 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 larger view of things that they can see uh, what things mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're abstracting. Uh, this is one of my cases. This is a boy in Georgia. Um, he drowns during the first grade, um, about halfway through the school. Then when he's able to come back, um, bear in mind, let's <laughs> all just slow down here a minute. Bear in mind, in the first grade, what children are reading is see, spot, run. Mm-hmm. Dick and Jane. This kid comes back and he's reading Greek mythology, <laughs> and understands it, and goes up to his teacher and says, why was the book Robinson Crusoe ever written? <laughs> I remember I mean, reading What are you doing a kid like that? <laughs> so she, she took him out of, out of class and put him in another, you know, gifted class or something. There is no first grade 
class in the United States of America that is prepared for children who can abstract in the first grade. Mm-hmm. Or I don't think there's any, now let's not go there, PMH. I don't think there's any institution that is prepared to have anyone abstract at any age, as a matter of fact. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding? Dealing with conceptual understanding. Right, right. And the first grade. That's why I'm so loud here, and I intend to get louder. Um, about uh, how do we understand this? What's going on in the brain? Because obviously something is. Mm-hmm. Um, these little kids are getting it harder. They're getting it faster. They, they're getting more of it. And again, I feel the reason is this the power punch of a near-death experience is happening to kids where the basic flooring in the brain is being laid for you know understanding for for uh, for the brain for consciousness for for um, um, everything mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. being laid in the brain when they're getting hit by a near-death experience. So what I'm finding is the younger the child, the greater the jump. That makes sense now, because you really go into explicit detail about the formation of the, uh, you talk about the limbic system and the um, other areas that I can't call in the brain development, those critical years. And you've been talking about that in, in other contexts as well. Yes, and now I'm louder. (laughs) No, for sure. Well, I think you're making the case, certainly. Let's, I want to cover a few more things. We only have about 15 minutes left. It's flying as usual, not no surprise. Let's talk about the offspring of NDEers, the experiencers' children. This was interesting. Who are they? Who are these children? What's going on with them? And why would You're talking about the Marxism. Yes, that's exactly and what I'm talking about. And I'm not going about. to be able to go in depth with Marxism. Just touch on it. Because I don't have the, my facts with me. Yeah. Well, you don't have and to give me numbers. Just give me the give me, give me the short but sheet. There was a fellow I don't know if he's French or whatever. Yeah. But he was able to prove or establish that if something very um, impactful happened to you, um then i mean really impactful that um changed your life in a significant way that 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 would pass down through your genes to your offspring mm-hmm. and what he found was it could go to the third generation that's as far as he went well, you know, our Native Americans always say plan for the 10th generation. So they, I think they were on to this. Uh, but this idea of Lamarxism, and I could find, yes, yes, there is clinical evidence. Well, I can't say clinical because I'm not a clinician. But I can say there's a lot of evidence to show Lamarxism in these people. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I've got a lot of these older people then who their children and their grandchildren have the same or similar 
after effects as grandma or granddad have. So this so brings, I'm sorry. Down. Yeah, this is so interesting. And again, I'm seeing cross correlation points, markers in the research that I'm doing and other uh, uh, phenomena, we'll call it broadly, but still connect points. What about, can you recall, and if you, if you can't, that's fine, but in some of the traits that are coming up in this in these offspring, would it include paranormal and psychic sensitivity in some cases? Certainly. Uh, uh, the mind, the, um, the synesthesia. Yeah. Uh, but certainly a lot of this understanding. Uh, um, Let's stop for just a minute here and look at understanding. What I found with most of these kids, certainly not all of them, but most of these kids, they were not interested in reincarnation. Hmm. They were not interested in life after life. They were not inter interested in life after death. These kind of things that um, really um, spark the rest of us. Now, certainly there are some uh, experiencers in the book that came in with reincarnation. They drew pictures of it, of other worlds and where they were. Most of the predominant number of these children come in still bonded to the other side, wherever they were. And um, they're still there after they're born. They're still there in the first grade. Maybe they're still there in the third grade. It's really hard for them to understand or um, uh, be able to be a part of the earth world. Their biggest problem is, is learning how to be a human being mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they're still bonded to the other side. Understood. We mm -hmm. have a very high, high suicide ideation rate in these kids. In my first study, it was 21%. In this study, it's 74%. Wow, that's huge. That's and, uh, and these are people that... No they're, no, they're not trying to kill themselves, but they would like to because they're homesick for heaven. They want to get back to where they know their home really is. Not here, but there. And no, I'm not talking about extraterrestrials. No, I'm not talking about aliens or civilizations in other planets. I'm talking about the life continuum. And their idea of life is this incredible stream, this incredible stream of energy. And, and, and it will dip once in a while. That's a life. Mm -hmm. Come back. Go on. Maybe dip a little bit. That's a life. Come back. They're part of this stream, this ocean of consciousness, and they're remembering that. Yes. They're, they're, they're still attached to that, and they don't lose it. An 86-year-old woman, 
And she still has that memory and that desire to go back. 86 years. Never lost it. Was never she, lost it. Was she the oldest that you... Uh, she was the oldest, 86. The oldest. That's yeah. really she something. Clear memory. No problem with memory with these people. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That's also very poignant. That's that's very telling. So when we're talking about aliens, when we're talking about all reincarnation and all these other things, most of those topics do not interest the average child near-death experiencer. Isn't that interesting? They look at all that and they think that's silly. Right. But I get, I get the, I don't want to say logic, but I get where that may be coming from because to them, they do not see any lines of demarcation. They do not see these things again as partitioned, but rather a part of that continuum. And there has, there have been some other studies that have been done. I'm thinking of the, the organization Free, which is, is focused more on the ET, if you will, forgive the colloquialism, uh, experiencer, <laughs> but nonetheless, they're finding again cross correlations intersection points not any line of demarcation it's not that they're not interested in the subject but don't look at it as something that should be put in one little box and this in another box it's all a part of the same bigger thing that you can't extract that's why i have a whole chapter Mm -hmm. on this ptsd thank you the next thing i was going to bring up go for it let's talk about ptsd as we begin to close out it's real for these people right well you know, um, 34% of these people, it's 397 people, 34% were positive about their near-death experience. 61% were negative. Because growing up and finding their place in life was just too difficult. Now, I'm not talking doom and gloom here. Because I've got huge numbers of these people that went on to have a really incredible life. A number of them became millionaires. Yes. Um, So uh, we've we've got highly intelligent people, 75% highly intelligent and and successful lives, what you and I would call successful. Mm -hmm. But yet we still have this high you know, ideation rate of suicide because they never get over this homesickness for the other side. Um, The book is dedicated to Tracy. Um, Tracy had her near-death experience inside the womb as she was being born while her mother was attempting suicide. So all three things were happening at the same time for her. She went on, by the way, to become a millionaire. But um, what she went through in trying to figure out who she was, where she belonged, how to make sense of life, was a very harrowing story. I can only imagine. And I recall that, uh, I believe I read that dedication. And I believe you bring her up later in the book as well, I'm sure, because I, I recall you talking about uh, the mother was in the process of trying to commit suicide. Can yeah. you imagine? And you, ta- you do dedicate some time in talking about how aware, at what point 
the individual in utero be, is aware and to what extent they are aware. People, you got to get this book. I'm, obviously, I there'll think, be a link. I mean, it's yeah, amazing. You're going to be really surprised. Yes, There's I agree. There's a lot there about the silver cord, about breath, mm -hmm. on and on. Um, they're going to be really surprised. I know that. I would agree because I was. It was great. Let's get one more thing in. I have to bring this up. Multiple ND. <laughs> okay. You have to bring this up and you better have your numbers here. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> Give me what you can. Multiple NDEs. I'm reminded of Judy, one of the experiencers in your group who had, get this uh -oh. people, a whopping 17 near-death episodes. Talk yeah. about this. Multiple experiencers. I had a number of people in my study, the second one, who were the only reason their parents um, became pregnant with the child, raised the child, was, was so that they would have a sacrifice in satanic rite, rites. Uh, mm. In other words, they were satanic cults. And this one, Judy, um, she had her first near-death experience, I think, what was it, like four weeks old? And by the time she was nine years old, she had had 17. Mm. So she's tortured again and again and again, dies again and again and again. Um, just phenomenal. 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 Um, and sad. Yeah. And, 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 and some yeah. of them were like that. Yeah. Um, it stood out for me, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, hold on just a minute. Yes. Here's a quote from Judy. Yeah. All of my experiences in this life, whether they appeared to be dark or light, are expressions of love. Experiences of searching for love. I came into this life with a purpose. This was not known to me until much later in my life. Or I would not have been able to truly know they experiences as they were in the moment you see you see it was important that she not know and then her, her her last comment what i know today has brought everything full circle hmm. can you imagine all the near-death experiences she had and and she was able to write this she had she successfully married I think she has about four kids, uh, wonderful family. Everybody gets along with everybody. Um, they often go into counseling uh, if they feel they need it to make sure things come out uh, th that need to be said or should be said. Um, she, she, she said the, the most help that she got was from yoga and from uh, meditation mm -hmm. and from mindfulness. Can you imagine yoga for the body? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, she got a lot of help, spiritual help from yoga. That's a great success story. That's a great place to end because we, we spent a lot of time talking about tumult and trauma and crisis and challenge and differences and feeling like a misfit. 
but we didn't get to solutions. That was an area I really wanted to talk to, and we're out of time. But this is a great way to end. This was fitting that there are solutions. And I, I would think as varied as the experiences are and as varied as the after effects are, the solutions are as well. And I believe you said that about 99% of those that you worked with in this study whether they found the solution or felt that there was, they did, it, it was glass half full, right? 99%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a yeah. good thing. That's right. a great thing. Yeah, it is for all yeah. of us. Yeah, it is for all of us. And this is for all of us. Look, whether you've had a near-death experience yourself, whether you're you're directly or indirectly uh, touched by this, this, this is an important episode. So I want to thank you. Let me, let me get into that. Let's say this was a vital conversation, PMH. We still don't fully know how many individuals, both children and adults, are dealing with the after effects of a near-death nope. episode. We don't. But I have a feeling it's far more significant than we know. So I'm going to say to the audience right now, if you or someone you know has had what you would describe as a near-death experience and you're struggling to understand its full impact, if you want to understand this more, I'm really going to urge you to like and share this episode, really, with those you feel uh, can benefit from such a dialogue. Please also comment. Start a conversation about this. Keep the conversation going. We must continue the dialogue. It's so important. And I'm going to say... get on my website. Say again? Get on my website. Absolutely. www.pmhatwater.com. There will be a link in the description box below. You know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the book, etc. Uh, I'm also going to remind people, uh, go ahead and subscribe to Higher Journeys, would you? Go ahead, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> so you can tune in to deep conversations like these each and every week. But this one was special, special for me for a lot of reasons. First of all, I love it when I get to sit and chat with a friend. And who cares if there are a few thousand people listening in to our conversation? It's okay. But this yeah. one was for all of you, uh, journeyers, PMH. You know how I feel about you, my dear. I absolutely love you and I love your exuberance and I love your passion and keep it up. And uh, can I say how, ma how many years young you are? On, the, on, the, on September the 19th, I turn 83. You're beautiful. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? I love it. That's Listen fun. to that energy, you guys. That is, it. And there'll be another 83 or more years for you. I can feel it. <laughs> Sure. So, <laughs> you're the best. Listen, don't hang I up. PMH, <laughs> don't hang up. I'm telling you right now, do not hang up the phone, PMH. I want to say a few words to you offline. But for oh, now, yeah. I'm going to sign off with the journeyers. Thank you so much for tuning in to Higher Journeys. Thank you. And thank you to PMH once again. She'll be back, guys, talking more about this. But in the meantime, go get that book, The Forever Angels, Near-Death Experiences in Childhood and Their Lifelong Impact. PMH Atwater, thank you. Thank you. Bye.